Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 10, The Republic of the Northern Border. I'm Brandon Seal. Quote, Antonio Zapata always wanted to fight. End quote. Such was the recollection of a contemporary of Zapata's years later, and it rings true. After his victory at the Battle of Alcantara on October 4, 1839, Antonio Zapata was ready to force march immediately onto Matamoros and to take the port city before the Centralist Garrison Army even knew what had hit them. But the commander of the Rio Grande Federalists, Antonio Canales, was more restrained. Maybe he feared letting loose the Texian volunteers on the port city. Maybe he feared letting loose Zapata's vaqueros and Indians. Or maybe he felt that he could achieve his political goals without any more loss of life or destruction of property. Texas histories have long favored Zapata's personal courage over Canales' calculated restraint. But I think this is in part due to the fact that uncompromising men are easy to admire, as Robert the Bruce's leprous father reminded us in Braveheart. But maybe we ought to consider more seriously the virtues of the man who, unlike Zapata, didn't always want to fight. Everything about Antonio Canales' public life and pronouncements up through 1838 gives the impression of a man driven by personal ambition. And so Canales' reluctance to fight, at least when compared to Zapata, is often interpreted by his enemies through this lens. But Canales' raging personal ambition didn't mean that he wasn't genuinely committed to federalism. In fact, the Republic of the Rio Grande Museum in Laredo has a copy of an instrument by which Canales personally guarantees a loan of $5,000 to his fledgling army. Which, by the way, also puts his reluctance to commit his forces to battle in a different light. It was his money that he was risking in every battle. But more than just his pocketbook, I think that Canales never lost sight of the fact that his goals were primarily political, not military. He wanted a federalist government return to power in Mexico City by whatever means possible, and the battlefield was just one possible avenue for accomplishing this. The aftermath of the Battle of Alcantara may have actually confirmed for Canales that the battlefield was not the best way to achieve his goals. Because in the aftermath of his great battlefield victory, nothing else happened. Canales had expected a silent Federalist majority to re-emerge throughout Mexico, clamoring for federalism. And yet this didn't happen. The rest of the country didn't even really seem to notice his victory. In fact, with the pastry war over, the Centralist government could now concentrate even more resources on addressing Canales' brief little surge of momentum following the Battle of Alcantara. And this is what prompted them... And this is what had prompted them to send the reinforcements to Monterey that General Arista had deployed to beat back Canales and Zapata there for the second time in five months that January of 1840, which we just covered in the previous episode. But Canales' other big problem was that for as grand as the victory of the Battle of Alcantara may have seemed to the Federalists, the Centralists were the ones controlling the narrative. Particularly the Centralist commander in the Northeast, General Mariano Arista. Several months prior, General Arista had begun pushing the narrative that Canales and Zapata's movement was really just a mob of vaqueros, indios, and valgamedios, Texians, out to pillage the countryside. General Arista had successfully separated the Federalists from their ideology, 
and instead associated them with the exact kind of foreign intervention that Mexico had just barely survived during the pastry war. And so as Canales retreated back to the Rio Grande, again, he knew that his movement was on life support. Again. Combined with attrition, desertion, and casualties, Canales and Zapata's army had shrunk from a thousand down to maybe only 600 men in the opening days of 1840. At this point, the only thing that was keeping their centralist pursuers at bay, who by the way outnumbered them about three to one now, was Zapata, or Zapata's name. Every time the centralists got too close, Zapata would about face his rear guard and form up in a battle line as if he was preparing to charge them. Seeing this, the centralist troops would all halt and fall back. Quote, Zapata's very name was sufficient to do this, end quote. One of Zapata's Texian volunteers later recalled. And yet one man's name couldn't hold off a 2,000-man centralist army forever. Canales made it back to the Rio Grande Vias with the main body of his army on January 7, 1840, but General Arista's forces weren't far behind. It was all feeling exactly like a bad rerun of what had happened back in the summer of 1839. A Federalist thrust toward Monterey, a Centralist counterattack, a Centralist pursuit all the way back to the Rio Grande, and the Federalists left in the no-man's land between the Rio Grande and the Nueces. Last time, Canales and his chief of staff, José María Carvajal, had placed their hopes on forming an alliance with the new Republic of Texas. But for various reasons, that hadn't worked out. So this time, Canales resolved to try something different. On January 18, 1840, Antonio Canales formally called for a convention of all the pueblos of Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas following through on a circular that he had published the previous November. Canales called for the convention to meet on the south bank of the Nueces River, at a town known as Casablanca, close to modern-day Sandia, Texas, on January 23rd. With astonishing speed, the pueblos of Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas, or at least the northern parts of them, answered the call. And for four days, delegates met there in Casablanca, concluding on the 26th of January, 1840. They published a report of their proceedings, summarizing the Articles of Convention to which they all agreed, a document uncovered in the Secretary of Defense archives in Mexico City by Professor Stan Green, who was gracious enough to share it with me. I find it to be a fascinating document, but it's not a constitution. The Rio Grande Federalists already had a constitution after all, the Constitution of 1824. The Casablanca document was more a charter, creating a new, quote, provisional government for the northern border, end quote. In that provisional government, Antonio Canales, unsurprisingly, was going to be the commander-in-chief. And as secretary of the governing general council, the convention selected José María Carvajal, the fiery little San Antonian, his arm now cradled in a bright silk sling from the wound he had suffered at the Battle of Alcantara. Tradition holds that Laredo was selected to serve as the provisional capital, but for most intents and purposes, it seems that old revolutionary Guerrero was the seat of government, if for no other reason than that they had the only printing press. As their motto, this new provisional government chose three words, Dios, Libertad, y Convención. God, Liberty, and Convention. The last word referring, of course, to the convention which they had just closed out, but also to the idea of custom, as in the conventional rights of the pueblo 
against their sovereigns in the Hispanic tradition, which was really the core idea at the heart of Mexican federalism. Quote, the government exists because of the pueblos. The pueblos don't exist because of the government, end quote. The document reminds its readers. But there's a tension in this document that's a little hard to reconcile. The Casablanca Articles of Convention declared the current centralist government illegitimate, and in Article 9, declared any subsequent act by that government null and void. And yet the Articles of Convention also specified that the new provisional government was only ruling on behalf of, quote, the pueblos of the northern frontier of the republic, end quote, meaning the Mexican Republic suggesting that they still viewed themselves as a part of a larger Mexican polity. And to complicate things still further, Article 2 declares that, quote, until such time as a national convention freely elected by the pueblos declares a form of government that better suits the republic, a provisional government will be established in these states, end quote, by which they mean Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas. But this is the part that I find hard to reconcile. If the Casablanca Articles of Convention are declaring the central government illegitimate, and if they're standing up a new provisional government for their three states in opposition to that government, aren't they effectively declaring themselves independent? How can they still be considering themselves part of the Mexican Republic? If the Casablanca Articles of Convention are a declaration of independence, they aren't a declaration in the mold of the American Declaration of Independence. Or for that matter, of the Texas Declaration of Independence of 1836. But they may have something in common with the Texas Declaration of Independence of 1813, which you can listen to back in bonus episode number one of season two of this podcast. That Declaration of 1813 declared, slightly abridged here, quote, We the people of the province of Texas declare that the binds that have held us beneath the domination of European Spain are forever broken, that we are free and independent that we have the right to establish our own government, and that we are forever free of duty or obligation to any foreign power, end quote. But then, a few days later, in the opening of the 1813 Texas Constitution, that same revolutionary junta declared that, quote, the province of Texas shall henceforth be known as the state of Texas, forming part of the Mexican Republic to which it remains inviolably joined, end quote. Well, this is the same conundrum that we're faced with here in 1840. But it's a conundrum only if we insist on interpreting it through the Anglo-American model of independence. The Anglo-American model holds that when you declare your existing government illegitimate, you are, de facto, independent. But that's not the case in the Hispanic tradition. In the Hispanic tradition, when you declare the government illegitimate, each pueblo or town reverts to a sort of state of, quote, Temporary autonomy, end quote, as scholar J.J. Gallegos calls it. Which is to say, you're sort of independent, and you have to stand up a government to do all the things that a government normally does, but you aren't severing the binds that tie you to the geography or culture with which you share a history. For example, think of a succession dispute in a monarchical system where you have two claimants to the throne. Different pueblos can keep doing their own thing while the claimants fight it out, In fact, some pueblos might support one claimant against another. But the idea that you could dissolve the ties that bind you to a certain cultural community doesn't follow immediately from that. All that said, Mexican centralist newspapers at the time 
certainly made out the Articles of Convention to be a Declaration of Independence. They mocked Canales and his, quote, New Republic of Northern Mexico, end quote. But more than anything, this may have just been a way of trying to link his movement to what had happened in Texas a few years before. Which is another way of saying, though, that this was a way that the centralist government was able to disparage the Rio Grande Federalist movement without having to reckon with its arguments about the primacy of the pueblos and about the questionable legal basis on which centralists had repudiated the Constitution of 1824 a few years prior. You may note that we haven't heard from Antonio Zapata in a few days. Well, that's because Zapata wasn't present in Casablanca. While all of this political theorizing and posturing was going on in Casablanca, he had taken up quarters in Guerrero, his hometown, where he was continuing to hold off centralist general Mariano Arista. When the Casablanca Convention ended on January 26, 1840, Canales, Carvajal, and the entire new Federalist government came and rejoined Zapata and his forces in Guerrero. There, Zapata threw them the pachanga to end all pachangas. The enlisted men were issued their back pay and set loose to party in the streets. And the officers, Zapata hosted personally in his home there on the square for a great dinner. And that night, in one great ceremonial act, the men and perhaps the women and the rest of the citizenry as well swore allegiance to the new flag of this new government. Traditionally, this flag has been depicted as consisting of white and black horizontal sections with a red hoist side section with three white stars representing the founding states of Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas. A contemporary account actually describes the flag, however, as consisting of three horizontal bands of white, red, and black with a blue vertical band on the hoist side populated by three white stars. And then there's a third, slightly less well-substantiated contemporary description that holds that the flag consisted of red and white horizontal stripes, Texas style, on the fly side, with a green vertical field on the hoist side, again, with three white stars on the green field. Maybe we can do a future podcast about the search for this flag. My good friend and collaborator Cesar Hinojosa tells me that he might have a line on it in Mexico City. After they'd had this great inaugural ball, the first thing that the new Rio Grande Federalist government did was returned to Texas to seek out President Mirabeau Lamar. This time, they hoped, he would receive them as representatives of a legitimately declared government, not just as partisans in a civil war. But just to be sure, they decided to line up a few endorsements first, a task that fell to the fiery José María Carvajal, himself the childhood victim of the Spanish royalists after the Battle of Medina, also the quasi-adopted son of Stephen F. Austin, and certainly a radical Federalist through and through. And so who did Carvajal go see first to line up support in Texas? Our old friend, José Antonio Navarro, who I hope you remember from season one of this podcast. But Antonio Canales had learned from the previous summer's experience not to peg all of his hopes on Carvajal's far-fetched schemes to bring on the Texians as allies. And so he, always the brush fox, secretly set in motion a plan B. Which is to say that one of Antonio Canales' first acts as the commander-in-chief of this new provisional government of the northern border was to seek out the enemy, Centralist General Mariano Arista, and to begin to try to negotiate a surrender. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande.
Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence of the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library, and in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here, and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Media. that's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Vías del Norte, A History from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilan Coahuiltecan Nation, and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.